The Mozartian lightness and grace of the finale of Brahms's second piano concerto is a remarkable conclusion to one of the grandest of all piano concertos, one of the longest in the classical and romantic repertoire. How did it come to be as it is? I believe it's the result of the symphonic urge which drove Brahms on right from the beginning of his career. He had a hard act to follow. His musical hero, Beethoven, was, and to many still is, the greatest symphonist who ever lived. And Brahms felt the weight of the challenge this presented to later composers more than most. He dithered and hesitated over the composition of his first symphony, and one of the attempts evolved into his first piano concerto. It's stirring stuff, but it failed to capture the public's imagination. After its dismal reception, Brahms himself was doubtful of the work's worth as a successor to Beethoven. Twenty-three years later, Brahms tried again, and this time he was ready. He now had a couple of superb symphonies under his belt. His second piano concerto would fully achieve his idea of a concerto conceived along symphonic lines. It would realize the heritage of not only Beethoven's nine symphonies, but also Beethoven's last two piano concertos. And I think there's a clue to that which I'll reveal later. The finale of Brahms's Piano Concerto No. 2 always comes as a surprise and something of a puzzle after what's gone before. What on earth has it got to do with the first three movements? Yes, three. Brahms gives us four movements, one more than usual, which straight away puts this work on a truly symphonic scale. Nothing could be further removed from the light-hearted playfulness of the finale than this gentle call to attention. This opening figure is the epitome of Romanticism, a solo horn sounding its soft signal. It already sounds like an echo, though the piano returns the gesture with an expansive response, an echo of its own kind. Could anything be simpler? And yet it seems pregnant with possibilities. There's the simple do, re, mi of the horn call, and a triplet idea, which can be slightly simplified, This rise and fall describes the smallest possible melodic leap in Western music, a semitone, an arch so gentle we've hardly left the ground before you return. And yet it's this unassuming kernel which is the germ for so much of what's to come. A fact Brahms makes clear as the piano explodes into dramatic action, taking the falling semitone as its impetus.
But those rising notes on the horn haven't been forgotten. They underpin the massive arpeggios which appear in the texture and challenge the orchestra to respond. The piano part sounds as though it's being played by three hands. Piano has retired to the green room after its first appearance and left the stage to the orchestra alone, as classical precedent demands. Did you notice the energetic, striding bass line there? That bass line is an example of the brilliant but subtle way that Brahms develops the individual strands in the argument. Never mind what's going on on top, this is a well-argued extraction of the gold from the rocky nugget. As it proceeds, Brahms gradually focuses down onto that tiny semitone interval, rising this time, causing the striding to dissolve into a more sinuous gliding. Semitonal shifts have appeared in other parts and in other ways as well. Here's the upper line, also displaying the sinewy, striving quality that's so characteristic of movement by semitones. So we've come a long way from that mysterious Do, Re, Mi. And Brahms's next theme is also full of semitonal shifts. Incidentally, that stabbing new idea is a typical piece of Brahmsian variation technique. If we go back to that earlier lyrical idea... ..and then listen to the top part again... ..you can hear where it comes from. 
For the harmonically minded, the key of this rather earnest song and its agitated offspring is D minor, the me note of the do-re-mi idea. A traditionalist might think this is a rather strange place to find oneself so early in the proceedings. But in part, it's the result of the continuous semitonal strivings, and it's prophetic of interesting things to come. More of that later. But where's the leading figure in this drama? Where's the piano gone? In this symphonic conception of the concerto, the orchestra is an important element, but it's time for the soloist to return, dramatically wrenching the music from the demonic D minor back to the home key of B flat. As the piano takes up and develops the ideas the orchestra has laid out, we can hear how symphonic this music is. The piano part is extraordinarily difficult, and yet heroic, virtuosic display isn't really to the fore. And the orchestra, rather than chugging along an inane accompaniment, is an equal partner in the musical discussion. In fact, the highly detailed, intimate interweaving of the lines is perhaps more akin to chamber music than symphonic music. Chamber music extended to monstrous proportions. I've spoken a lot so far about the importance of semitones in this movement, and in fact, this tiny interval is vital to most Western music. A rising semitone can imply a key, and by the careful use of semitones, a composer can move his melodies between keys and imply rich, colourful harmonies. But if a work focuses more deeply on semitonal movement, we can often lose our sense of key altogether. The music just seems to slide around in mid-air. Sebastian Bach's chromatic fantasy uses the semitone to deliberately uproot the music and create instability. One of the amazing things about Brahms's second piano concerto is that we never lose our sense of place in the music. It always has tonal direction, despite the underlying prevalence of semitones throughout. As we come to a new section in this first movement, the piano decorates with extraordinary arpeggios, traversing huge intervals. Descending in the left hand, rising in the right, 
This is what they sound like together, up to speed, horrendously difficult. It's a completely new style of piano playing, which is to say that Brahms had been developing such extended arpeggios since his earliest days, but here they reach their apogee, almost defying harmonic analysis. They're so attention-grabbing that it's easy to miss the continuation of the new idea in the orchestra underneath. Did you spot those rising semitones there in the flute part? The outlandish figuration now gives way to more octave leaps, distending the melody almost unrecognisably, but it's still basically proceeding in groups of semitonal shifts. The woodwind think this is worth a try, but in their hands, the melody is so completely broken up that it becomes an exercise in pointillism, a technique we associate more with the 20th century and the modernists. The sense of that is actually very hard to apprehend underneath the new piano figuration. It's verging on a new aesthetic, one of the aspects of Brahms which the father of the avant-garde, Arnold Schoenberg, undoubtedly had in mind when he called him a progressive. Not only does it show Brahms far in advance of anything he'd written so far for piano and orchestra, he's far in advance of anyone writing at the time. The pianism is of the most testing kind. Brahms's predilection for widespreading arpeggios creates a completely new sound world. Let me take a large leap myself now to the middle of this vast movement, into what's called the development section. To a very large extent, it's dominated by a cataclysmic struggle between piano and orchestra, wrestling with the semitonal motif. The music is searching, hunting for a new key. This dotted motif is refreshingly straightforward, a sudden burst of simplicity among those relentlessly shifting harmonies. And before long, we can detect the very opening Do-Re-Mi idea 
disguised in the dotted figuration. The development section continues to pit the uncomplicated clarity of the Do-Re-Mi theme against the sliding semitonal movement of the other material, until eventually they seem to merge, one might almost say merge together again, since it was that opening horn phrase that threw up both these ideas in the first place. Then, quietly, magically, Brahms reintroduces that distant fanfare. We're on our way home. I hope I haven't gone on too much about the way the interval of the half-tone has dominated the texture of this vast first movement, but it crops up in so many ways, and I believe it's crucial to an understanding of Brahms's thinking here. Perhaps I might be permitted to string some examples together from towards the end of the movement to demonstrate how semitonal steps take over. At one point, the piano grumbles away in the depths. And if you remove the top note of those chords, you're left with this. The lower strings, at the same time, growl threateningly. And the piano rises up with rippling triplets, which sound like this when they're slowed down. It's riddled with semitones. And yet, Brahms's hold on the underlying harmonic direction of this movement has been so masterful that we never get that drifting, aimless quality that we might expect. Remember that Bach chromatic fantasy. We always know where we're going. Final strains bring all these issues into climactic focus, with the Do Re Mi motto, striving for ascendancy, against the ever more forceful semitonal progressions. I should stress that this isn't a battle between soloist and orchestra, as you might expect in a conventional concerto, but a symphonic argument, with piano and orchestra each taking both sides. 
The bass line is still chromatically inclined, but the soloist finally ushers in a triumphant reference to the opening theme, with a massive uprushing scale. wondered about those final bars. They do indeed seem remarkably straightforward compared to what's gone before. Downbeat even. Those three full-stop chords at the end are curiously old-fashioned winding up to what has at times been a remarkably forward-looking piece. I wonder why Brahms didn't return to the Do-Re-Mi idea in a jubilant fanfare at the end. <laughs> there's the answer. It sounds obvious, sensationalist even, doesn't it? No, Brahms's sophisticated instinct has calculated the effect absolutely exactly. Anything else would be romantic posturing. And anyway, there's more to come. A scherzo. stirring stuff. The piano shooting up like a rocket, the bass plunging to the depths. This is Brahms in the swashbuckling mode of his early sonatas and chamber music. It's even more unexpected when we remember that in Brahms's time, concertos had only three movements. His audience would have expected a gentle slow movement now, not all this storm and stress. Try and hold on to that last idea, high up on the strings, plaintive and otherworldly. It'll have more significance later on. But let's retrace our steps a little. If I ask the principal horn to play the very opening Do-Re-Mi motif, transposed into the minor key... ...we can easily hear the connection with the opening of the scherzo. And what about that plunging bass? Well, it's a striking inversion of the concerto's first three notes. So the scherzo is yet another facet of the opening idea. You may remember I pointed out a sudden and unexpected shift to the key of D minor soon after the beginning of the first movement. In fact, it's the only time that key appears there. I said it had far-reaching consequences, and here they are. D minor, the key of the Mi note of the opening Do, Re, Mi, is the stormy key of the scherzo. And there are other connections. Oh dear, it's those insinuating semitones again. The bass parts aren't going to let it go, are they? This scherzo is driving us back to the issues of the first movement. 
the music seeds on, encompassing a wide range of tonal adventures in an extensive development section. Eventually, it evolves a new offshoot. Well, that's nothing more nor less than the most strongly stated semitonal progression in the whole work so far. Again, it recalls the first movement, this time a passage from the start of the coda. connection is about as direct as it could be without being a straight repeat. The heat is on and the accompaniment takes on a warlike gallop. Remove the top line melody and concentrate on the galloping figure. As the excitement mounts, the music subtly bursts out into a glorious D major, reserved entirely for this moment in the massive score, and a theme that seems designed to cut a dash on the strings, Handelian in its grandeur. It's the apotheosis of that gallop into battle that we heard just now. and it's counterpointed by another keening metamorphosis of the semitone. It's my favourite passage, and I can't resist playing it to you. occurs one of those typically Brahmsian syntheses. The piano sets off with octaves in both hands, a passage whose difficulty isn't eased by the requirement to play extremely softly and, if you please, legato. Every pair of notes constitutes a semitone step. But if you take out the semitone, You're left with the unadorned Handelian theme, albeit in the minor key. So this is no easy triumph, and yet another stage in the battle to ward off the destabilizing influence of the semitone, which occupied so much of the first movement. Battle is rejoined. Remember that plaintive, distant idea I pointed out earlier on high strings? Well, it returns here transposed, but this time significantly ushered in by solo horn. 
And what are those notes? Well, they are D and E flat, the exact notes which form the semitone rise and fall in the opening horn motto. We're nearly half an hour into Brahms's second piano concerto. Most of his three-movement predecessors would be coming to a conclusion about now, but we're only just halfway through. Brahms was aware of the risk he was taking in so expanding the traditional form. He would, inevitably, create a work of terrifying dimensions, placing unknown physical and mental demands on the soloist, not to say the audience. He wrote to a friend, I must tell you that I've written quite a nice little piano concerto with a pleasant little scherzo. It's in the key of B-flat major. I'm afraid that, as I've written some fairly good music in that key up to now, that it may dry up as a result of too heavy demands. Hmm. So, with the scherzo still ringing in our ears, here we are, finally, at the start of the slow movement. That beautiful melody is justly famous, and the solo cello establishes a new focal point, more a close-up, after the cosmic vastness of the scherzo. The opening phrase makes great play once again with the important notes of D and E-flat, and so another connection is made in Brahms's intricate web of musical associations. There's also perhaps another significant allusion here. The prominent cello solos in this movement are also a feature of the piano concerto by Clara Schumann, the widow of his friend and supporter Robert Schumann. Clara had become the most important person in his life, and perhaps this music encapsulates some particularly tender memories. The whole movement has the intimacy of chamber music, and the piano writing is some of the most delicate Brahms ever aspired to. The orchestra now picks up a fragment of the initial cello idea as if to remind the soloist of his duties, and the piano duly picks up the lead. As the movement passes on, it enters a whole new sound world, almost impressionistic in its blurred harmonies. 
and it also displays those hugely descended intervals in the piano part, which all but evaporate any sense of melodic line. Textures like this later came to characterise the avant-garde of the early 20th century, albeit in a rather different stylistic context. Brahms's music is firmly rooted in the 19th century tradition, and yet here he is prefiguring a more experimental age. If it weren't for the clarinet here, this section would be difficult to follow, so rarefied is the piano melody. The scoring of piano and solo clarinet here reminds me strongly of Robert Schumann's piano concerto. Is this a deliberate allusion? Well, yes, I think it might be. Such is the intimacy of this moment in a movement full of contemplative inwardness. Although this concerto seems to be utterly abstract, with no hidden agendas, no coded references, we've already noted an allusion to Robert's wife, Clara. I think it would be highly likely that Brahms would wish to recall his first great benefactor. His piano concerto number one had been a requiem for Robert Schumann, and I think his ghost is still present twenty years later here in the second. The melody in this case was used by Brahms again in his song Immer Leise. Does this lullaby refer to the eternal rest that Robert was now enjoying? As this slow movement gently draws to a close, the soloist gestures towards the rising chords with which he made his first entrance, three movements and nearly 40 minutes ago. Another small gesture pulling the whole work together.
And here we are at the light-hearted final movement with which I started today's programme. The movement's in the same key as the preceding one, B-flat, but Brahms's opening melody has an ambiguity which slightly wrong-foots us. It doesn't begin where we expect. It sounds as though it's in the wrong key, leaving us in no doubt of the whimsical character of this movement. In fact, the key relationship is the same as that between the second and third movements of Beethoven's fourth piano concerto. Let's listen to Brahms's transition again and hear how he jolts us out of our reverie and into the final dance. Perhaps you can now see why I suggested at the start of this programme that this movement is something of a puzzle. The epic first movement was balanced by the demonic scherzo of similarly epic proportions, and the slow movement, while not as turbulent, was full of deep emotion. This jolly finale, though, reveals an equally important facet of Brahms's character. Lest we focus too deeply on the serious business of taking on the Beethovenian mantle and forging a new symphonic synthesis, Brahms is reminding us that he's also the author of numerous Hungarian dances and the Liebeslieder waltzes. great analyst and commentator Donald Francis Tovey had an equivocal attitude to this movement. It has, as far as I know, he wrote, never been suggested that this finale was too light-hearted for the rest of the work. Well, by light-hearted I suspect he meant lightweight, and I suspect he thought it probably was. But this movement is anything but. The all-pervasive semitone interval abounds here as well. In the main theme, and buried in its continuation. So, we're still exploring ideas from the very opening of the concerto. The whole huge organism flowers like a coral reef from one tiny idea. That's what gives the concerto its massive aspect, not merely the length or the nature of the piano writing, which even in this light-footed finale can explode like this. And then this tiniest of intervals is expanded by an octave to create another unusual but distinctly Brahmsian piano figure. The second theme takes these dancing semitones and reworks them in a colourful gypsy style. And the second half of that theme is a kind of repeated Amen idea. Which, of course, sports our favourite interval in yet another guise. The finale has found new life in the dominating semitone, so much so that we could easily not be aware of how prevalent it is.
Here it enhances the insouciant, dancing character, where in the earlier movements it had deepened the harmonic hue. The joviality of this movement contrasts completely with the rest of the concerto, but it's tightly tied up with it by the use of that germ motif. And anyway, it isn't just jolly, and on no less of a scale than the other movements. The simple idea of a rondo, with its recurring refrain, is expanded to gigantic proportions. Pianist, surely exhausted by now, is given absolutely no respite by the composer. And the intricate duetting with the orchestra requires mental stamina as well. But for all its grand scale, this music still feels intimate, informal. beginning of the program, I talked about how this concerto was a conscious response to the legacy of Beethoven. Even in his own time, Brahms was seen as a conservative, looking back to the music of the past, while his contemporary Wagner pushed the boundaries and paved the way for the 20th century. But I hope I've shown that Brahms was every bit as revolutionary and inventive as Wagner, not with the histrionics and hyperbole of opera, but by reimagining the concerto. He dedicated this work to his old teacher, Eduard Markson, the man who inspired him with his love and understanding of Beethoven, a composer whose challenge had now been met and overcome. Mm -hmm. 